Hey, everybody. Welcome to Coffeehouse Theology, the podcast version. This is Wednesday, September the 23rd, 2020. And Brian, we have made it to the end of the Old Testament. We should have some kind of victory celebration or That's something right. at this point. There's, you what know, should... a, a momentous occasion as we're going to look at the final three historical books of the Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther today. But Brian, why don't you get us started with a word of prayer? Absolutely. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace and your son that saves us. Uh, thankful for the Old Testament, Father. Thankful for all that we see and all that it shows us and how it just intensifies our gaze on our Savior. And so, Father, let these final three books, and I love what Jay said last week, that, that uproot the old covenant and replace it with the new covenant. And we see that, that, that tension there, Father. Um, it's the same tension in us, uprooting the world uh, to, to see Christ and to seek Christ. And so, Father, find us faithful and change us as we, as we encounter your truth, encounter your word, Father. Uh, let us be different people that, then, that started listening to this. And it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Finishing up the Old Testament, right? I mean, it, what, a, what a long, strange journey it's been, I think, is a, a good a good talk. Right, and, and, and we're still in Act 2, Scene 9, right? We're, we're at the return. God delivers his people, and we're still in a similar time frame where we were last week. Uh, but the, these books really give us kind of the post-chronicles, um, and right. that's why in, in our Bible they come post-chronicles. They're the really historical post-chronicles up until the, the 400 years of silence. Yes. And so that's where all, all of this leads. And and I love the you, you, you've got You've kind of identified right four four key themes that that we look for as we go through this. One, one is God honoring leadership. We see the the critical nature of leadership throughout each of these books, and leaderships in different ways. Leaderships in a political realm, leaderships in a, in, a, in a religious realm. Yep. I mean, the, relig, religious leadership or leadership in all of these different dimensions. And then, and then the, we see the return to covenant faithfulness, right? We, they restore the temple, and they're faithful, even just for a little while. Right. Right. We'll but, but, that, but, there, yeah. but, there, but there is a return to faithfulness. And they have, a, they have an identity. And what's strange, right, they may be even more Jewish now mm-hmm. than when they were a nation. Absolutely. Right, because of what they've been through. And sometimes we see that in our faith, right, that when we come to Christ, we are truly, because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we are more truly what Christ meant us to be yep. uh, than, than we ever are anywhere else in our life. And the last is certainly God's sovereign care for his people, that he was never, right? And that's one of the things we talked about last week was it's not that he's indifferent. It's that we're faithless. Right, and so he uses these tools, these tools of judgment, these tools of correction, to bring us back home and bring us back to his people. And what a beautiful, right? What a beautiful place to start, Ezra. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, kind of chronologically that Ezra and Nehemiah, really for most of history, was one book. Right. So keep that in mind. You know, they came at the end of, of Chronicles, and of course, a lot of uh, scholars think that Ezra probably wrote Chronicles as well. So this is this is the sequel, of course, that involves his story. But uh, our time period here is uh, about five thirty eight to four fifty seven BC, uh, and so we've got we've got the the first six chapters of Ezra uh, re- really deal with the first wave of exiles to come back, uh, and so that was under Zerubbabel, that guy's name. That's always fun to try to say, uh, and so so the first. Six Six chapters of Ezra deals with that, uh, and the second uh, by uh, the, the the journey of Ezra himself uh, with the second wave of exiles. Uh, so the first first journey was Zerubbabel. Their focus is rebuilding the temple. Ezra was really more concerned with rebuilding the spiritual condition of mm-hmm. of the people uh, after their seventy years in exile. What's interesting, you know, when you 
begin to to think about it. I grew up, Brian, thinking that you know when you talked about the return from exile, you know this this most the Jews, right? Like they came back. Got actually, it was just a remnant, just a fraction of them. Yeah. And so one of the things that we realize is, you know, scholars estimate the Jewish population probably deported was two to three million people. And and we actually have the, the number there, the census in chapter two, that only 49,897 chose to leave Babylon, track the uh, 900 miles and rebuild the destroyed temple. Uh, and so 81 years later, Ezra's group, that's only a little over 1,700 uh, that come home. So. And when you see – when you look at that compared to like the census in numbers, right, those yeah. two census where everything's in the tens of thousands, right, and right. they total up to six or 700,000 people, you, you just feel, right, you feel the, the pain. You feel the kind of the reduction of the people. And even the people that came back had foreign wives, had yeah. intermarried, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't even a faithful remnant of yeah. 50,000. Yeah. And so just remarkable – just the contrast in those numbers was just remarkable to me. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing to, to remember that this is actually a relatively small group of Jewish yeah. people, right, trying to repopulate Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So Ezra is is a legendary figure in Jewish history, of course, uh, because of, of, of what he did. Uh, his name uh, comes from the Hebrew word Ezer, which means help. Uh, he, he was a godly leader by all accounts. Uh, he was a contemporary of Nehemiah. We'll talk about Nehemiah in just a moment. Uh, the tradition was was that he founded the great synagogue. Mm. Uh, synagogue worship became a way of life because the people didn't have the temple. So one of the innovations of exile was that they set up synagogues where they could continue their worship. Uh, but at the great synagogue there in Jerusalem, the, uh, the canon of the Old Testament was settled. So yeah. if you want to know how we got the Old Testament, like the short answer is Ezra was the guy right, right. who pulled pulled this together. Um, for historical purposes, just to give you a frame of reference, you know, during the same time period, think about this. Buddha is teaching in India, Confucius is teaching in China, and Socrates, or Socrates, uh, is, uh, as Bill and Ted called him, uh, is teaching in Greece. When you think about the intellectual, right, the intellectual change, and yeah. just, because th- these are all, you know, f- you know, flipping the curve intellectually yeah. on both philosophy as an understanding and humanity. Right. Right. And so all of that turn turning is happening yeah. in the same hundred year period. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so if you think about Eastern mysticism, you think about Western philosophy, all of those things are really being birthed and emerging during this time. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that then just 400 years after this, the Messiah comes. Right. You know, so yeah. part of what God was doing, it was this interesting kind of breaking in. So there, there's an interesting pattern in, in this, the, this narrative that stretches Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, these three key leaders, right? In each of their stories, the Persian king is moved by God to send a leader to Jerusalem. And so these guys are, are given permission, which seems strange, right? And there, there's some, some reasons probably for that, of course, in addition to the, the ultimate one is the sovereignty of God. But that leader faces opposition in the rebuilding efforts, and that opposition is overcome, to which we would say, hooray, right? But what's odd is there's also kind of an anticlimax to the mm-hmm. end of each of their stories. And we'll talk about why in a little bit, but that's a pattern to watch for as you, you read uh, these two books in particular. So uh, a quick outline of Ezra. Chapters 1 through 6 is the restoration of the temple under Zerubbabel. Uh, the first exiles return in chapters uh, 1 and 2, and then chapters 3 through 6 are really focused on the construction of the temple. Then you've got a gap. 
And and as we'll talk about in a little bit, Esther actually takes place during this gap. You've got a gap of 60, 70 years here. uh, So keep that in mind uh, in the book of Ezra. And then you have Ezra's ministry, uh, the reformation of the people, chapter 7 through 10. So in chapter 7 and 8, we see the return of the exiles, that second wave, and then we see his emphasis on on restoring the people. Uh, So a few key passages uh, out of chapter 1, verse 3. Now let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, to build the house of God of Israel. Uh, so that, that is the decree by the king, and God sovereignly moves to allow him to do that. You know, one of the, the theories, of course, is like, why would these Persian kings, you know, allow that to happen? Well, th- their empires were very different than empires before them. Pretty much empires before them were smash and destroy, right, right. annihilate. Right. But now, you know, it's almost a more sophisticated era of empire building in which they're trying to assimilate, but they also had their own gods as well. Right. And so one of the thoughts was of the, the, the Persian gods, uh, you know, unlike the Babylonian gods, were, were gods that were kind of pluralistic. And so there was the sense of, oh, we've taken their gods from their homelands and brought them all here, and maybe we need to go put them all back to make right. the gods happy, right? right? Let's put the gods back in their home so that they'll be happy and bless the Persian Empire. Right. And so that's kind of a really shorthand explanation of probably why uh, these Persian kings were a- allowing the exiles to return home. Now, again, we know big picture, sovereignty of God, but that's, that's probably the reason. And then chapter 6, of course, records the completion and dedication of the temple, uh, which inspires uh, the obedience of the remnant to keep mm-hmm. the Passover, right? for the first time since exile. Uh, and then in uh, verse uh, chapter 7, verse 10, uh, we get what I think is just, you know, kind of the heart of Ezra. This is what made Ezra, Ezra, where it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Brian, that, that really should be every Bible teacher's, right? The pattern. I was going to say, it sounds kind of like disciples making disciples is sort of what that pattern would be, right? So Absolutely. Maybe that's not quite so new for the New Testament. That's it. Right? It's a thread throughout Scripture, right? That's we right. study the Word. The word there in Hebrew means to seek or to look carefully. Mm-hmm. Then we, we have to obey it ourselves. Right. And let's be honest, that's the part that we struggle with, the, the step that we like to skip. Right. You know? But then the third <laughs> thing is, is we, we teach it to others, which is simply showing to others what God has shown to us. Well, and that's what you're life does, right? I mean, you can say what, and you kind of learn that as a parent, right? You can say whatever you want, but what they're going to imitate is what you do. Absolutely. And it's the same way with the word, right? You can be a proclaimer of the word, but if your life isn't aligned with the word, nobody's going to hear it. Right, and so that and that the beautiful part of Ezra was his life and his and his teachings aligned, and then you see the result, right? Even even though temporary, you still see the result of God's work in it. Yeah, yeah, and so as Ezra brings the word back to the people, one of the things that really bothers bothers him is this thing you mentioned about intermarriage. Right, uh, God's people in Deuteronomy were prohibited from doing that, but they have done that. But it's kind of interesting. Ezra seems to take it on himself, right, to tell the people to to get rid of their foreign wives. And so what's interesting is the prophet Malachi is going to actually counsel against that. Right. So, so there's even this ambiguity, right? Some confusion, even among very godly men during this time about, man, we, we find ourselves in a strange situation, right? <laughs> we know God hates divorce. Malachi right. says that right. uh, very explicitly. And yet on the other hand, we know that we weren't supposed to intermarry with these foreign peoples. And so uh, the holiness, the purity, so to speak, of the Jewish people has, has been diluted there. And, and so Ezra, again, ends in this kind of strange place where they're, they're, you know, they're confessing their sin um, and yet some of them are, are divorcing, but some of them aren't. And so, you know, you get to the end of the book of Ezra and you're like, oh, oh okay, this is, this is where we're at. 
And so this idea that, you know, everything was triumphant upon the return to Jerusalem is just not the case. They were still a very confused people as they're trying to pick up the pieces of their culture. Well, that brokenness, right, from the captivity, from the Babylonian captivity had had resonance, right? It resonated on. And that was the Babylonian theory, right? Unlike the yeah. Persians, right? They brought you in and assimilated you and then sent you and then and then you were now Babylonian. Whereas the Persians is I love what I love what you said, you know, kind of sent the gods back to their homes so yeah. they could be happy. But you know, that's a that's a, a that's kind of a ramification of being assimilated, right? right? Of having these doctrines you know, imbued to you, yeah. which is what the Babylonian culture did, and so I guess it's not surprising when you think about what they've been through. You know that that, and this is a generation that didn't know for almost almost exclusively the people coming back didn't know free Israel yeah. in six oh nine or six ten or yeah, a whole generation had been born and grown up who, right. who had never never lived in Israel before the exile, and then they've heard all these stories and they come back to a bunch of rocks. <laughs> yeah. Right and and these glorious pools and this glorious temple and then even when they rebuild the temple right the thing we had last week was you know, yeah th- th- this is it yeah right and yeah. you know, how can the glory of yeah this there's this fascinating Solomon. scene right where it talks about the old people weep and right. the young people are celebrating and 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 the two almost cancel each other out right and so right. the old people are bummed because they're thinking of the glory of Solomon's temple and this ain't it right Zerubbabel's temple right was, <laughs> no, was, was just you know right. it, it it functioned but right. it wasn't as beautiful or as glorious right and they got the young people who had, didn't never know had any better right, right. And I mean, it's never like, had oh, a temple we, we <laughs> got a temple right okay cool so so again this this just you know this real struggle during this the season yeah. that, that God is restoring things and that is good and yet at the same time there, there's still some things missing as we're going to talk about so some mm-hmm. things we learned from Ezra right one is this idea of revival yep uh, the the basic theme uh, of Ezra is the spiritual moral and social restoration of the returned remnant in Jerusalem uh, and so worship is revitalized and that's good and and, and there is this attempt to purify um, the the people to some extent of course sovereignty we need to remember right that God kept his promise. In Jeremiah 29, mm-hmm. he told him, right, 70 years. So settle down in Babylon, you know, have families, build houses, plant gardens, but but eventually you're coming home, and, and, and God made a way for that to happen. So let's not miss the fact, again, that God sovereignly protected his people under a powerful empire while they were in captivity. Amen. As far as we know, again, the only people group carried off into exile that eventually came home, yeah. you know, and retained their identity, yeah. uh, so to speak, was the Jewish people. So, and, and to a sense, they even prospered in exile. Uh, and so God raised up these pagan kings who were sympathetic to their cause and allowed them to rebuild. And then, as we already mentioned, keep looking for that theme of leadership, that God mm-hmm. provided zealous and capable spiritual leaders who directed the return and the rebuilding and the revival. Mm-hmm. So speaking of rebuilding, probably no famous, <laughs> more famous builder in the Bible than good old Nehemiah. A civil engineer. A civil engineer and the the patron saint of every church building campaign <laughs> right, that you've exactly, ever heard. Exactly. Uh, always points to Nehemiah. Which, which is part, and, and to, to be clear, when we moved into our new facility, Station Hill, I chose to preach through the book of Nehemiah. Mm. But I actually wanted to make a point with that. The point, you know, the, the walls, as we'll see, were rebuilt relatively quickly. But it was going to take the rest of Nehemiah's life to try to rebuild the people spiritually. Yep. And so the reason why I chose, and the emphasis we put in that series before we, we moved to our new campus here five years ago, was that I, I really wanted to stress that, yeah, building walls and buildings is great. You know, and God uses those. He uses physical structures as Absolutely. ministry tools. Absolutely. But what's more important is the people, right, that are inside the building. Amen. Uh, the people that were inside the walls of Jerusalem, you know, are the key. So uh, mm-hmm. Nehemiah, you know, God's building project, little background, 444 to 425 B.C. Nehemiah leads the third 
uh, and last return of the exiles to Jerusalem. So wave one was, was Zerubbabel. Wave two, uh, of course, uh, was Ezra. Wave three now is Nehemiah. Uh, and Nehemiah had a strategic position in the Persian palace as the cupbearer to the king. Uh, that king at the time was Artaxerxes I, the son of Xerxes. Now, what's interesting is, of course, is he used that position to take bold action. But if we put it together with another story that we're about to look at, Esther, right, which we told you happened between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, Esther was Artaxerxes' stepmother. Mm. So she might have been instrumental in getting Nehemiah this appointment. Wow. Isn't that cool how you see how God works, you know? And and, and again, if you don't read the big story of the Bible, sometimes you miss those details. That's beautiful. And so, you know, Ezra put Nehemiah in this very important position because during that time, of course, it was very popular to try to get at a king by poisoning them. So this was a very important position in his cabinet, uh, so to speak, during the time. So Nehemiah, of course, gets to go home and, and rebuild the walls. Uh, he challenges his countrymen uh, to do this project, and despite uh, opposition from both without and within, this monumental task is completed in only 52 days when the first wave of Israelites has been home for 94 years. Yep. So it's a great story, right, about focus and perseverance and dedication. Yep. Um, by contrast, of course, as I mentioned, this task of reviving and reforming the people takes the rest of Nehemiah's life. Uh, and any leader spiritually will tell you that. Right? Oh, yeah. Your work's never done. Uh, and so that's a part of the, the challenge that you face. Uh, while Ezra deals primarily with the religious restoration of Jerusalem, Nehemiah is more focused on the political and geographical restoration. As I mentioned earlier, these two books were regarded as one unit uh, for centuries. Uh, and the name Nehemiah literally means the comfort of Yahweh. Mm. Uh, and so a couple things about the outline. Um, chapters 1 through 7 is mostly the story of the reconstruction of the wall, the preparation, and then the actual building itself. Uh, chapters 8 through 13 are the restoration of the people as they renew the covenant and attempt to, to become obedient to the covenant, again, with mixed results. But uh, chapter 1, of course, is just uh, just a stunning, stunning story. Yeah. And so I'm going to read a little bit of this for us because uh, we see a crisis, right? There. Uh, Israelites were supposed to be God's people, but there's only a remnant that's returned. Uh, Jerusalem is supposed to be the city on a hill, right? This gleaming city, uh, and it's in ruin. Uh, instead of glory, uh, there's shame. So God's people are dealing with reproach. So uh, it says, uh, as these men had returned, right, from Judah uh, and given a report in the king's court, uh, in the middle of chapter or chapter 1, verse 2, it says, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So it's interesting. We just see Nehemiah's response, right? He's a guy who cares. Yeah. Think about it. He's got a cush job in the palace, right? He's getting to eat the, you know, the, king's the finest food, food yeah. and drink the finest wine, and like he's got a good gig. Yeah. And so he could have easily ignored this word. He, but he cared enough to even ask, didn't he? And so right. he opened that door. Uh, and, and so instead of just sitting in his comfort and security, uh, nobody asked him to take up this cause. That's one of the things that's just interesting about this task. But I believe, Brian, he did know the word of God and his own conviction. Yeah. In, in Jerusalem 15, it says, or uh, Jeremiah chapter 15, it says, Who will be concerned about Jerusalem? Right. Who will show her mercy? And I really think it was obviously conviction from God, you know, which is interesting. When we ask questions of people, how you doing? Like, do we really care how right. they're doing? Right. 
I mean, I mean, and, obviously here, like Nehemiah really genuinely cared. Well, and he had, he had a sense of his people, right? He, even in his position of power, he never lost the sense of his people. Yeah. And that I think, and and that's almost unique among, maybe not unique, rare among yeah. Israel's Israel and Judah's leaders. As we've been through the kings, as we've been through, so few of them yeah. really had the interest of the people in mind, more as their own survival, right, or their own glory, or their own. And and Nehemiah is that is that you know just rare leader that that has the that the, the, his burden is his people. Yeah. Right. Not not himself, but his people. Yeah. And out of that burden, he weeps like yeah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Right. Yeah. Like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, one of my mentors says, "What makes a person laugh or cry is yeah. an indication of their character." Absolutely. And Absolutely. so he's deeply, deeply moved. And, and I love what he does first, right? His response is that he prays. Yep. He cared enough to, to not only ask and weep, but he cares enough to, to pray. And we see prayers of Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah has a strong prayer life, and we see 12 prayers uh, throughout this book. And, and this one is just powerful to me. And I won't, don't have time today to read it all, but, but he goes back and he remembers the covenant and the promises of God, right? And he asks at the end, verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So that's a prayer that has feet, as we would say, right? It's a prayer that at the end, he's not going to just merely leave it at prayer, but that prayer moves him to action. James 1, 22. Don't just be a a hearer of the word, right? But a doer as well. Well, no, that he asked for the Lord's favor, right? If it, if it be his will, and that wasn't a demand or a command or because I do this, you do that. But he prayed for the, there's nothing wrong praying for the Lord's favor on your actions for the king. Right. Right. To have the Lord's favor in your dealings. Now, again, his favor may mean different things. That's right. So we have to be very careful about what favor means. But it's it's certainly worthwhile to appeal to the Lord's favor in your endeavors. Yeah. And so, and like I said, and and you see, I, I love that what you said. Right? It's, it's it's prayer with feet, yeah. right? And in in doing that, it 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 emboldens you to action, knowing that the Lord is is sovereign. Absolutely. And so the stage is set. And then mm. in chapter two, what's interesting is Nehemiah doesn't just rush, right? He still waits on God's timing. He waits for the king to kind of open that door. And he sees that as the opportunity to be bold. He asks for, for a bold request. Because again, you, this wasn't the days that you just strolled up and made a request to the king. Right. You could lose your head, you know, but, but he makes that request on behalf of his people. And, and he has that faith to, to not only wait, but to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does. And the king grants it. And so uh, he is able to kind of send back the, the scouting party, you know, that he goes with first, um, and who's able to assess the, the condition of the walls. He does it very wisely, does it at night, doesn't draw a lot of attention to himself. He's not like, Nehemiah is here. I'm here to, you know, no, <laughs> here to he, fix he's very wise. He's, right. he's very, he has a method, a strategy that he's, he's working. Uh, and so in, again, in, in chapter six, we get the story that the wall was finished in 52 days. Mm. And, and I love, I love his, his, his narrative note, right? To this. So when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Right. They, it would have been easy for Nehemiah to take the credit, but he doesn't. No, he recognizes that it's the, the hand of God that allows all of these things to happen. Yeah. And so, and like you say, that, that time frame, is, if you think about what they did in that time frame, is truly miraculous. Yeah. That's it. Truly miraculous. That's it. And mm. so with, with the, the walls rebuilt, 
then in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra comes, right, to, to work on the spiritual restoration of the people. And so he, he stands on this wooden platform, and they have this beautiful ceremony. And, and this is one of the places we get, right, standing in honor of God's word. The people stand up while the word is read. Uh, and so it, 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 just an incredible scene there. And I love to teach this scene when I talk about how the word of God should impact us, right? You'll even hear me say this in my sermon sometimes, right? And, and I think this when I write every sermon. How should this impact our head? In other words, our understanding, our, our cognitive you know, reasoning, what, 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 what do we need to learn from this? Then how should it move our heart, right? Head and our heart. And, and, and you know, how should that understanding lead to gratitude or, or lead to you know, uh, appreciation or, or joy and celebration? And then there's the hands. Like what does this passage tell us to do, right? right? The psychomotor is what they'll tell you. That's the, kind of the fancy terms for what good education does, right? It's, it's, it's mental right? Psychological, um, intelligence, that that's the head part, the heart parts, the affective. And then of course the psychomotor is the, the hands, but that's what happens, right. right? It says that they read it. And then it says in verse eight of chapter eight, they read it from the book, the, the book of the law of God clearly. Right. And they gave the sense. So they explained it so that the people understood the reading. Amen. So that's the head part, right? Yeah. Then look what happens to the heart down in verse 12. All of the people went their way to eat and drink and some portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Amen. So the word of God moved them, right, to joy and celebration. And then hands, what did they do? Well, they reinstituted the Feast of Tabernacles or the yep. Feast of Booths. Yep. So they did something. They did what the word said, head, hard hands. This is a beautiful illustration of that. And so we see some really cool pictures, right, of, of the reviving of God's people, you yeah. know, what we might call revival today. And so some things we learned from Nehemiah, one, of course, is rebuilding is hard work. Oh, man. Uh, and so, you know, if you build it, they will come is the way the saying goes, <laughs> right, right? From, the, from the famous movie Field of Dreams. But I would argue if you build it, you must first pray and then act with boldness, courage, and perseverance. Right. Like, it's not that easy. <laughs> right. You know? Um, it's typical, as I mentioned, to hear Nehemiah preach in the middle of a building campaign. But Nehemiah really isn't about bricks and mortar, Brian. It's right. about God building his people through his words and godly leadership. Right, because a shopping mall has bricks and mortar. Exactly. Right? And the question is, 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 is what's happening among the people, yeah. right? And how, how does that? And, and you love, and, and you love the example of your second point, right? The power of prayer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you love how that's focused in, in, in Nehemiah, that there's, that it's almost central to, to who he is and what he does, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But, but, but again, the Ezra-Nehemiah cycle begins in hope. Like, yep. we're going home to Jerusalem, and we're going to rebuild the temple and the walls and our houses. And, but, but it again ends in disappointment. Mm. So this return evokes memories of all of God's promises as God raises up these men. But at the end of Nehemiah, if you read chapter 13, again, if it ended in 12, hooray. Right. But chapter 13 is kind of a mess. We see the temple being neglected. We see the Sabbath being violated. We see the mixed results of their, their inner marriage. We see Nehemiah getting so angry, he starts pulling dudes' beards right. out. Right. right. And, and he ends with this interesting just kind of prayer, like basically like, God, I'm trying. I've tried everything I know how. And so he says, remember me, O God, for my good. Right. <laughs> That's all he can say at the end. It's like, God, remember that I tried. Right. Because the people still aren't getting it. Yep. And so one of the interesting things to me, Brian, is, is that in this book, which is historically the final book of the Old Testament, pretty much everything is restored except the king. Right. Yep. We got the temple rebuilt. Of course, yep. it's not its previous glory. The Jerusalem is reconstructed. The covenant is removed. The people have experienced some reforms. The messianic line is even intact. 
But what are we missing? The king. The king is yet to come. The king. And so what God's people need, right, is, is not just the temple and the walls and their houses and, and their laws. They need a new heart. Amen. And, and that's what the Old Amen. Testament, right? Let's go back to that thread, right? Jeremiah 31, yep. right? The people need a new heart. Ezekiel chapter 36, their hearts are stone. They need a heart of flesh. Yep. So all of these external things can happen that point to the fulfillment of the promises of God. But there's still one great promise that's missing, yep. and that's the Messiah, and that's going to be what changes everything. Amen. And so before we get into Esther, you know, Brian, you and I were talking about this before we started recording today, you know, this sets the stage for what we call the 400 years of silence. Mm -hmm. Now it was really anything but silent. It was 400 years of prophetic silence that God didn't speak right before Christ was born. But there's a lot of things that's happening. You know, Ezra and his love of the law, a good thing. But as, as the Israelites are pressing into it, they, they try to try to take the law and make it this ultimate thing. Right. And they make it about the law itself more than the God, the law pointed to. And so Ezra's spiritual descendants become the Pharisees. Right. Right. You know, you have Nehemiah, who's this strong character, right? Who's bold and, you know, is willing to take on a challenge and loves, loves his nation and his people. And so he becomes the seabed for the zealots, right? right? The nationalistic fervor that, you know, first comes with the Maccabees. That's a story that happens, you know, and the struggle for national freedom and identity of the Jewish people in the intertestamental period times. So what you have happening during this time is actually, I believe, the stage is set here for this longing to come where God's people are trying to figure it out. They're basically trying to do things harder. Right. And it's like Nehemiah, and it's just not happening. Right. And and that's and that's what we we see all through the right all up until and there's still these kingdoms right that come and go oh, yeah. these world powers yeah. that come the on Persians, to the stage the Greeks. The Greeks right and finally the Romans yes. right roll roll in and and take and that's where we right where we come upon the New Testament but these these world powers and this and like you say they're never their own right, right. even with the even with the uh, Maccabee rebellion they're still never their own. Yeah. Right. And and so there's got to be something to come and set them free. Yeah. There's a longing. Right. right. To, to be free, to be a, to be the people they know they're supposed to be. Yeah. And speaking of that longing, to segue into Esther, of course, Esther, just to, I mean, just one of the <laughs> most incredible stories, oh. I think, in all of history, right? Absolutely. Um, but just, just powerful that's here in the Bible is that, you know, again, what happened to these people that didn't return home? What happened to the millions of Jews who were still, you know, in the dysphoria, who were still separated from their homeland? And that's why God gives us the story of Esther yep. to see what happened. And so in the same time period, as we talked about, between Ezra 6 and 7, um, between the first and second waves of the exiles, we, we get the story of Esther. This portrait's the only one we have of the vast majority of the Jews in exile. And the key theme is hiddenness. Right. Where is God when all hope seems to be lost? Interestingly enough, this is the only book in the Bible in which... God's name doesn't appear, and yet his fingerprints are everywhere. Amen. So, you know, the key question that this book haunts us with, will God's people keep their identity or will they lose it and be lost forever, just assimilated into these foreign cultures? Literary context, let's just go ahead and note, this isn't Veggie Tales. Right. You've probably seen a children's version of this story. Um, if you really want to dig in, you know, yeah. pretty hard, this is, this is not a story for the faint of heart. Uh, some conservative Jewish rabbis required a student to be 30 years old yeah. uh, to study uh, this book. But uh, let's uh, look at an outline real quick. I think it's best to think of Esther in a three-act play. 
The key characters, of course, are uh, Xerxes, who's the king of Persia, had an empire that stretched from India to Ethiopia at the time. Uh, He wanted to be both feared and loved. He was that kind of a megalomaniac, right? And his empire was pluralistic. And so for him, it was okay to compromise as long as you were loyal to him. Right. So compromise was a part of the culture. Then you've got Haman. This was Xerxes' right-hand man, his prime minister, so to speak. Here is where, again, the Bible story is fascinating. Haman was an, a Geite or an Amalekite would be yeah. the other way to translate that. Have we heard of the Amalekites before, Brian? They've been roaming around for a while. Haven't they? And what was Saul, the first king of Israel, supposed to do with the Amalekites? Annihilate them. Yes. And yet he let them completely. Yes. And yet, in an interesting twist, an Amalekite here all this time later nearly annihilates all of the Jews in Persia. Wow. And wow. so what happens when we're not obedient to God's word? Yeah, bad things. Right? Bad, bad things. Bad things. It's interesting that the story is still read at the Jewish feast of Purim, right? Yep. And so they read it kind of in a melodramatic way. And when the name Haman is read, all of the children boo. Right. Right. right? He is such a villainous character. Then you've got Mordecai. Here's what a lot of people don't know. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. Hmm. It's not a Jewish name. In other words, he was assimilated into the culture as a second or third generation Jew living there in Persia. And so he had a Persian identity. His name is literally derived from their god Marduk. What's interesting is he was compromised, but resourceful, right? He was already yeah. a part of the kingdom, but he, you see this restoration of his identity. And the same is true uh, for Esther. Hadassah, of course, is her Hebrew name. And so we call this the girl with two names. Her Jewish name comes from the word for myrtle, which means righteousness. Her Persian name, very different from the mm. goddess Ishtar, uh, and is, was used as a Hebrew pun for the word hidden. There's that theme again. Wow. And so one of the things that is really fascinating to me is that as we get into the acts of the story... Uh, I read a commentary, a book by a pastor from the Louisville area who who did the story of Esther, and he said, really, Mordecai and Esther, we all want to be Daniel thinking about being in exile. We want to be that guy. But really, we're more Mordecai and Esther. We've already somewhat compromised with our culture. So he argues that this is the better model for us to understand how we navigate our culture because you will see this recovering of their identity. Mm. So Act 1 is the threat, of course. Chapter 1 tells us that Xerxes throws a party in his empire of idols, and his current queen, Vashti, refuses to be objectified, so she is deposed. You don't tell the king no. Right. Chapter 2, Xerxes is in a bad mood. Why? Because if you remember your history, Xerxes fought against the Greek and lost an epic, historic, famous battle. And so he decides to give himself a little bit of a distraction, right? He holds a competition uh, to uh, find a new queen. Uh, As one commentator noted, this is not exactly the Bachelor Middle East edition, (laughs) right? Right. But it's more who wants to marry a brutal Persian dictator. Right, which is slightly different than giving out. Yes, very different. In other words, if he didn't pick you, once you were discarded by the king, you were sent into exile never to be with another man. Man or have another family again. Why? Because that man might be a better lover than the king, and right. the king couldn't handle that. Right. So understand that these women were, were basically thrown on the trash heap if, if they didn't win the competition. So what Esther is in here is not a beauty pageant. Right. Right. This is really kind of a battle for her life and her future. And so Esther, turns out, happens to be a good listener. By the grace of God, she is good-looking and a good student. So she wins, but she doesn't disclose her identity. 
Uh, meanwhile, her uncle Mordecai foils an assassination plot, which is going to be important. So in chapter three, Haman rises to prime minister, prime minister, but he's irked by Mordecai, who refuses as a Jew to bow to him as an Amalekite. Again, there's that story. And if you don't know that, you're kind of like, why wouldn't he just bow to him? Well, yeah. this is the, the enemies of God's people going back generations. And so he refuses to bow to him. So Haman manipulates the king into signing a decree to destroy the Jews. Uh, Of course, he reasons it will kill a, quote, cancer inside of the empire. And even then, the Jewish people were resourceful. And so the treasury has been depleted. So Haman's really got what he thinks is a pretty airtight plan here. And so the edict is issued. And because there are thousands and thousands of Jewish people, confusion reigns. Right. So that leads us to Act 2, which is the turning point. Like the Jewish people, this is a legitimate threat. They could be totally wiped out, their property commandeered, you know, all of those things. So Mordecai persuades Esther to intercede, and she has to choose between self-preservation or the risk of revealing her true identity. Well, and, and, you, and when you stop and kind of pause back, if they're going to eliminate all the Jews, eventually they're going to come find her. And so you wonder, what I've always wondered in reading the story is how much is this like the four lepers? Right. And if you remember the four lepers, they were like, we sit here, we're going to die. If we go in the city, we're going to die. If we go to our enemies, we're going to die. But they might let us live. And so you wonder if there is some some degree of that type of desperation uh, in her. Yeah. Uh, Mordecai begins to try to convince her, right, that, that living a false identity is, is a slow death, right. to your point, right, sooner or later. So in a faith response, and this is really the only overtly religious you know, moment in the whole story, Esther does fast and pray. Mm-hmm. And so in chapter 5, she holds her uh, banquet but, but doesn't make her requests, and Haman plots to hang Mordecai. In chapter 6, the king can't sleep. So an example of God's sovereignty and timing, right? Think right. about Daniel, the dreams. I mean, yep. how, how often God works in these ways in his big story. Well, he has his advisors come read to him his own history, right? <laughs> Even then, history books would put you back to sleep. Um, and he realizes that, that he never honored Mordecai. So in a comical scene, Haman thinks that Xerxes wants to honor him. And so Xerxes tells Haman, do something for this guy. Right. And so Haman plans a parade. Ironically, it's a parade for Mordecai. Right. While building gallows for Mordecai, by yes, the way. It's in right. the background. Which he's going to hang him. <laughs> so Esther's banquet in chapter 7, part 2, she reveals her true identity and Haman's treachery. So the king's outraged, of course, and he hangs Haman on the gallows <laughs> that he had built for Mordecai. And so in yeah. Act 3, we see the triumph. What's interesting is the story's still not over. Right. This is the law and the Medes of the law of the Medes of the Persians, and it cannot be revoked. That's right. But what the king does is he warns the Jews that a fight is coming. Right. And so when the people try to exterminate the Jews, they uh, instead win a victory, as the Jewish people have always seemed <laughs> to do, right, when the cards were down, and they save themselves and defend themselves from their attackers and are victorious. So in, by chapter 10, the last chapter, Mordecai is installed as the new prime minister and the empire thrives. Mm. The Feast of Purim is inaugurated. This is the first new feast or festival since the time of Moses. Wow. At the feast, uh, Deuteronomy 25 and the book of Esther are read. Uh, something called, and I'll totally say this wrong, but hamanachin is eaten. It's a three-corner pastry that are filled with like jelly or something, right, to illustrate the hiddenness of God in the story. Mm. So I think celebrating a story with jelly-filled donuts is a great way to go. Amen and amen. <laughs> right? Amen and, and amen. And they give gifts to the poor. Mm. Uh, so that, that's how significant this moment is, right, in Jewish history. Yeah. Uh, and so some takeaways from Esther. First of all, providence. Right. God is always at work, so be comforted in your trials. Interesting. 
the name of God never mentioned. No supernatural miracle occurs in the book of Esther, but God is in all the details. Mm. A pastor by the name of J. Sidelow Baxter said, while there's no miracle recorded, the whole story of Esther is a mighty miracle. Mm. And that's important for us, right? Because sometimes we have a hard time seeing the fingerprints of God, the hand of God, in our daily trials, in our struggles, in our situation. But when we zoom out, we realize he's been there all along. Right. So not only providence, but also protection. Mm. We need to remember that no situation is hopeless for God, so we need to be courageous in obedience, uh, as Esther was as a young woman. Now, the story of Haman, it's interesting from a historical perspective, right, links a series of final solution plots against the Jews. Yeah. Started with Pharaoh, right? We're going to eradicate all of the Jewish boys. Yep. Goes all the way through to Hitler, right? Yep. Uh, continues in some parts of the world, the persecution against the Jews to this day. Uh, and so why Esther is the last book instead of Nehemiah is this. The point isn't chronological, but theological. Mm -hmm. God's story of redemption is about to enter 400 years of silence, but God is still and always watching over his people. Amen. Always has his hand on them and over them. Yeah. Yeah. So so rich. And then finally, last but not least, promise. God is faithful, so be filled with hope in your waiting. Esther's story, of course, is incredible. But remember, we always want to ask as we wrap up the Old Testament how all of these stories whisper the name of Jesus, Mm. how they point us to him. So in redemptive history, God's hidden hand, right, is protecting the Messianic line all along. Like, think about it. How many times the Jewish people almost were extinct themselves, but also the Messianic line of David, like the promise he made way back in 2 Samuel 7, uh, that, that you know, someone of that line, you know, would be on the throne. While, while Israel is tossed among the nations, right? Literally kind of thrown to and throw like a tennis ball right. right? between all of these empires bounced around. So I love this, right? To say, if I perish, I perish, as Esther said, is really the way of the cross. Amen. Matthew 10. Amen. In chapter 5, Esther, like Jesus, entered a throne room, right? A throne, a room of power, like the, the Roman room of Pilate, right? And welcomed death on behalf of his people. Mm. It was a selfless act that saved. Mm. And then, of course, mm. signpost. For God's people, after a bloody battle, Revelation 20, there's a time coming when we too will get ultimate relief from our enemies. Amen. In the new heaven and in the new earth. And amen. Yeah, so good. So Mike Cosper, uh, the pastor I mentioned who wrote a, a commentary about Esther, says, Esther's a map drawn to help us find our way home. I believe that's why God is, quote, hidden throughout the story. It's the story of a group of people finding their way back to God through a darkened world, finding their voice for a faithful and vulnerable witness, and seeking to ensure that the generations after them don't make the same mistake. Amen. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, Brian, any final thoughts? I, well, one of the things, I, and I was reading a commentary uh, this week, kind of on the overview of the Old Testament. One of the things that they wrote as an, as an intro to these books, they said, you know, a millennium before this, Israel had been transplanted to Egypt, yeah. right? And they went in a family, and they came out a nation. Yeah. Right. And and they went. And so they were this nation and then Babylon destroyed the nation. So they went into captivity, the nation. Yeah. And he says they, they came out kind of this remnant, which is almost like a, a church. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what we're seeing the, the, the basis of almost a proto church. Right. In, in the return and the restoration and the, and the longing for the king, because that's the one thing that's missing. Yeah. Right. Is the Messiah, because that's the center of who who we are as a people. Yeah. Right. And it would be the center of who they are. Those who truly believe and follow Yahweh, that would be the center of who they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to think back here. Here we are, you know. Um, all the way through the Old Testament. And man, these themes and the beauty and the power of the sovereign hand of God Mm. uh, over creation, 
uh, over the history of his people, uh, over the rise and fall of kings and empires, right? Uh, And so we find ourselves here at the end of the Old Testament, loads and loads of promises to his people fulfilled. And yet we find ourselves longing, longing for that true and ultimate king, longing for that Messiah to come. And so next week, we're going to get there as we jump into the New Testament, as we will start to look at the Gospels. Mm. So next Wednesday night, we're going to do something special. We're going to do a Facebook Live uh, to kick off the the Gospels. We will, of course, podcast that as well. Um, And uh, for those of you who aren't on Facebook, but uh, we'll be back to a a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. That way, live, you can ask us some questions. We'll tell you how to do that. But go ahead and mark your calendars as as we get ready to, to jump into the New Testament and Welcome the arrival of a newborn king. Amen and amen. Can't wait, Brian. Mm, me All either. right, pray for us as we close. All right, Father God, we're thankful. We're thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for the Old Testament. Thankful for these stories, Father. Thank, thankful for your promise and your faithfulness. That even even 2,000 years, you know, 2,500 years after all of this happens, Father, you're still here. You're still faithful, and your hand is still on us. So bless us as we go from this place. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Brian. We'll see you next week. Mm.